Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that through Jesus we know that our sins have been paid for and you will not punish us for sins that Jesus died for. Lord, so we come stand with confidence before you this morning, knowing that our that you are for us and not against us, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for that. Be with us now as we look at your word. I pray that you would open it to us, make it clear. Help us to learn what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we start, looking at Daniel, you can turn there, Daniel 4. But I just want to mention again, we've done this from time to time, why I stand up here for 45 to 50 minutes on a Sunday and look at the Bible with you. It's not to entertain you. That's not my goal. My goal isn't to be funny. My goal isn't to be um, charismatic. Um, my goal, I hope, for the most part, is for my personality to get out of the way and to serve the text. My job, with God's help, is to give the text, the Bible, a voice. So that the, the words that the biblical authors wrote would live again as they ring through my words, not that they're dead, but that you could actually hear them audibly, and that the message that they are trying to convey would be clear. And here is the message of every single book of the Bible, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When read according to the intent of the authors, that means when you understand what the biblical authors are trying to tell you as you read the Bible, and sometimes it takes a lot of work to understand how they're getting there. The biblical authors want you to know Jesus Christ is God's final and last Adam and the only hope of the human race. That's what they want you to know. Adam, the last, has come. And he's fixed everything that Adam first did, and he's coming again one day. The Bible, from beginning to end, is about Jesus. And so my job as a preacher is to preach Jesus from all of Scripture. And we're going to preach Jesus from Daniel 4 this morning. Alright, but before we look at Daniel 4, I just want you to think about this question. Have you ever known someone who is just absolutely full of themselves? They reeked of pride. They only thought about themselves. If you talk to them, they only talked about themselves. 
and what themselves did, were doing, and were going to do. They spent money only on themselves. And if they did spend money on others, it was so that others would do what themselves wanted. It was a manipulation thing. Like, I'll buy you lunch if you serve me for the rest of your life. Whatever, you know, it's a manipulative act. If they ever did wrong, it wasn't their fault. It was somebody else's fault. Mistakes were not their responsibility. They're always right and never wrong in their own eyes. You ever known somebody like that? Maybe you have somebody in your mind. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, that was me, actually. I'll tell you, there was a time in my life where I feel like I smelled a lot like this guy. Still have his odor on me at times. Helping me change. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I know people like that. Horrible people. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm so much better than them. I'd never be as bad as them. I'm just a great person. Hmm. Maybe we all have pride in us, right? Pride is in all of us, according to the Bible. And the reason is because. Pride is actually at the heart of what sin is. Pride is the fuel tank of our sinful nature as humans made in God's image. In other words, pride is what gives sin its energy. Pride powers our sin like gas powers your car. If you're getting low on sin in your life, go hook yourself up with some more pride. And you'll be able to sin again, right? Sin runs on pride. Every sin we do can be traced back to pride. Our arrogant bent to put ourselves first and to do what we want at the expense of others and to think what we want no matter the cost and to say what we want to say no matter what God wants us to say. Sin Driven by pride is ultimately disobedience to God. And what is more arrogant than to say to the God of the universe with your life, with your mind, with your actions, with your words, my way, not your way. How arrogant. And yet every act of disobedience and rebellion that we do as humans, that's what it is. It's like little Esther saying to mom who birthed her, my daughter, no, my way. Pride. That a two-year-old would think that they know better than their mom. That is all of us before our maker when we sin. Pride is what drove Adam in the Garden of Eden to be lifted up in his heart and to seek to define good and evil for himself. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. It represents him saying, my way, God. I get to call the shots. It's what led Adam and Eve to disobey God. And it's what plunged the human race into ruin. That's why the Bible condemns pride again and again in crystal clear terms. 
God, Peter says in his first letter to the church, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this morning, what we're going to see in Daniel 4 is that the chief sin of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was pride. And God had the power to humble this arrogant king. So we're going to be in Daniel 4. Chapter 4, if you remember from the outline of Daniel, is smack dab in the middle of the Aramaic section. So Daniel is in two languages. Chapters 2 to 7 are in Aramaic. The Hebrew introduction stops at chapter 2, and you're like, boom. It's like you're reading a book, and it's English, and all of a sudden it changes to Spanish for seven chapters, and then it changes back to English. You're like, what was that about? Oh, maybe the author's trying to tell me something about those chapters 2 to 7. They go together. Oh, and then as you read them, you realize they're arranged in carefully matched pairs of chapters. Two goes with seven, three goes with six, four goes with five. And we're in chapter four, right in the middle, and its corresponding chapter is chapter five. Four and five go together. And in both chapters, we see a dad and a son. King Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belteshazzar. And Bel Belshazzar doesn't learn from his dad's mistakes. Both kings are humbled by God. Nebuchadnezzar gets a second chance. Belshazzar, we'll see next week, does not. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. So this morning, we're going to tackle chapter 4. The first example. And next week will be the second example. Like last Sunday, and the Sunday before it, we're going to walk through this story in four steps. Most stories have actually kind of four chunks to them. You're going to tell a story to your kids. You often lay it out in four settings, you know, four steps. You know, you give the names of the characters, and then you, you build to a, a crisis where these characters going, they're getting in trouble, and then there's the, the crisis moment, and then there's the resolution. So, good stories have four parts. So we're going to tackle the story in four parts. We see the king's dream, the dream interpreted, second, third, the dream fulfilled, and fourth, we'll see the resolution of the king, and we can is humble. So, first, the king's dream. I'm going to read this now, starting at verse um, four. The king's dream, chapter four, verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. There are the These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree. In the middle of the land, its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, 
cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals free flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him, so notice he stops talking about the tree, he starts talking about him. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of, literally it says, a beast. Till seven times pass for him. Again, the translators say an animal, that's okay, but I think it's helpful to say beast because it will help us connect certain dots later. So, verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The Holy Ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Verse 18, this is the dream that I and never had. Now, Belteshazzar, your turn. Tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. All right. We've seen this before, haven't we, in Daniel? Chapter 2, the dream. All the wise men come. They can't interpret it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not going to tell you the dream. you got to tell me the dream. And then they're like, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. And then he's like, okay, well, you have fun dying, right? And then Daniel's like, no, no, don't do that. I can interpret the dream and tell you the dream. Well, maybe you learned this lesson here. I don't know. In chapter 4, he's not going to kill the wise men. He actually tells them what the dream is. So it's a little different, but it's similar. We're going to see in a second. The dream has some similarity as well. First notice that you have a massive tree in the dream. I read Ezekiel 31 earlier about a king compared to a tree. Well, here you get a massive tree with its top in the very heavens themselves. So just picture this huge tree and its top is in the clouds and clouds are swirling around it. And this tree is like a mighty ecosystem all in and of itself. It provides shelter and food. It's a fruit tree. And things can hide under it. And birds of the air can nest in its branches. And then, I want that tree in my backyard. Great tree. Verse 13, Holy One, a messenger, so this is an angel from heaven, comes down and in a loud voice issues a decree Cut the tree down. Does heaven need firewood? I don't think so. What's going on here? The animals flee the tree. The stump is bound with iron and bronze and remains in the ground in the grass of the field. So, remember, there's a lot of similarities with chapter 2. There's two dreams. And in chapter 2, um, both dreams have something that gets toppled by heaven. Remember what chapter 2 had that was knocked over? Big image, right? The rock from heaven knocks it over. And here, you've got a tree that's chopped down by a decree from heaven. Are the tree and the image connected? I'm glad you asked. Yes. Very, very much so. 
Notice in verse 15 that the angel starts talking about this tree like it's a person. Verse 15. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the beasts among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of a beast. Verse 17, we read the purpose of the chopping down activity. Why is heaven chopping this tree down? This tree that's a person. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. So, if you've been listening to Daniel in the past few weeks, you know that's like the main point of Daniel, one of the main points. God sets up kings and takes down kings. He's in control over the rise and fall of kingdoms. And here we see he loves to exalt those who are humble. And lift up the humble. They are raised up to rule over the earth. The humble are those who actually acknowledge who God is and see themselves as his creatures. And apart from him, they realize they're nothing. Humble humans are exalted, like Joseph in the Bible story. We saw Daniel, the new Joseph, in chapter 1. Joseph humbled so low, and then God exalted him. Daniel humbled in exile, and then exalted to rule over Babylon. Second in command to Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimately, we'll see the Son of Man in Daniel 7. The Son of Man, Son of Adam, same word. Adam, man, humanity, he is raised and exalted to rule like God himself over all creation. Which means if God is exalting him to rule, he must be someone who is humble. <clears throat> Jesus, our humble Savior, exalted to rule. So, this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel is charged with the task of interpreting it. And Nebuchadnezzar is confident that Daniel could do it because... Three times he says, Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods in him, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. That, that doesn't mean that these pagan gods have put their spirit in Daniel somehow. It's just the way Nebuchadnezzar understands it. The, the authors of the Bible, um, basically Nebuchadnezzar's like, he's got a connection to heaven. That's, that's Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He, he's saying, this guy's connected to heaven. And in his mentality, it means he's got a connection with the gods. Well, the biblical authors want you to understand this is the spirit of the one true God, Daniel's God, who is giving him the interpretation of the dream. And that's what Daniel says. God helps me do it. God, in chapter 1, is the revealer of mysteries. He is the one that's telling Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. So here you have the first point, the dream. Now the second, the dream interpreted. Let's look at verses 19 to 27, and I'll read those for us. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky visible to the whole earth, which beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. King is a tree. It's a picture. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, the heavens. 
and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, the messenger, coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, with its roots, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the beasts until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the most high have issued against the Lord of the king. You will be driven away from people. So here's the interpretation. You, what does chopping down mean? You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals, with the beasts. You will eat grass of the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone who wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your kingdom by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So, we're going to go through this interpretation that Daniel gives in two passages, two flyovers. We'll do a kind of a quick flyover and then a little bit deeper flyover. Okay? So, first, notice that Nebuchadnezzar is clearly the tree in the dream. So he's having a dream about himself. You ever dream about what you look like in a dream? Well, he looks like a tree in a dream. See that in verse 22? You are the tree. And he's a great and glorious king. And the rule of his tree-like kingdom extends over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. You may remember, this is the exact same language that was used in chapter 2 of the image ruling over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold in that image, and he was king who, who ruled. So the image ruling over the animal kingdom. Where does that language come from in the Bible? An image ruling over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. God creates man in his image to rule creation. That was chapter 2. And in chapter 2, this image ruling creation gets hit by a rock from heaven and replaced by God's kingdom. Now here in chapter 4, the image is switched up. You get, instead of a great image made of metal, you get a tree. And the tree symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and his mighty rule over creation. And interestingly, his rule, it started to reach into the heavens itself. In the biblical storyline, when kings try to reach into heaven, it's a symbol of pride. They're being like God. And so the God of heaven comes down and chops down the tree and drives the tree king away from people. And he makes him live like a beast among the beasts. No longer ruler over the beasts. The king has become like a beast, like an animal. 
And the, the seven times in the dream, um, it's a symbolic number of a, a complete amount of time. Until you're ready. Until seven times pass over you basically means, um, it's not like a set period, it's until you're, you're fully good and humble. Until he acknowledges the sovereignty of God, that God is the great king, and that God is the one who's given him his kingdom and can take it away like that. See that in verse 25? He won't be completely destroyed. His stump will be left until in humility he realizes his rightful place in the world. When you cut down a tree, a live and healthy tree, and you leave the stump, who knows what happens? Shoots come out, right? Why you bind the stump with iron and bronze. Don't let the shoots come out until he's good and ready. Then remove it and the chunk of the stump can sprout again and he'll be given his kingdom again. That's, that's the idea of this dream. So that's the first pass through. <clears throat> and then Daniel gives the king some advice, right? Repent of your sins in verses 26 and 27 so that that won't happen. Nebuchadnezzar is like a tree that's got really proud. It's like, I'm the tallest of the trees. My top is in heaven. He gets cut down. He's humble. But after he's humble, his kingdom will be restored. That's the first pastor. And there's similarities to chapter 2. Now, second pastor. We'll go a little bit deeper. Just wanted to point out what I've already said this morning, especially earlier when we were reading Ezekiel 31. This imagery of a king like a tree, it taps into the storyline of the Bible and into the literature of the ancient world, which is still available for us to read today. And as we uncover with archaeology pictures of Babylon and their writings, we see trees of life, big trees, we use often to symbolize kings and their kingdoms in the ancient world. Trees that give food and shelter to everything under their branches. And we use symbols for political parties, the donkey and the elephant, right? What symbolized the king in ancient Mesopotamia? A great tree of life. And you better hope that tree of life gives food and shade. It's like, if, if you want to live under a tree in the ancient world because it's shady and protected you from the sun, there's food there, oasises have trees. So a good king is like an oasis for his people. It's kind of the, the picture, like a little piece of Eden. <clears throat> now, a lot of scholars think that in Genesis, as you're reading the book of Genesis and you read about a garden with trees and you read the tree of life, it sounds a lot like some of the myths of Babylon and some of the ancient writings. And they think, well, the, the writers of the Bible, they borrowed the tree of life and some of these ideas. They borrowed it from the Babylonians and from these ancient religions. But I actually think that it's the other way around. I believe the Bible preserves the true story and that these other religions are distortions. Regardless, what we see again in the ancient world, it's very common to portray kings and kingdoms as big trees. Trees that you want to shelter under. Nebuchadnezzar is a mighty tree of life. One other key place where you see that 
is chapter 31 of Ezekiel, which we looked at earlier. But Ezekiel, he's describing the king of Assyria as a mighty tree. And he even says it's a mighty tree in the garden. It's like a tree in the garden of God. The envy of all the trees of Eden. But gets chopped down because of pride. So, kings are trees. I said earlier, the Bible tells one story. Jesus compares himself to a tree. I am the vine. A tree is vine. Biblical authors didn't really make a distinction. Tree life. Vine, you are the branches. If you're connected to Jesus, you're like a branch in that tree bearing fruit, which is the fruit of being connected to God. Love and life on and on. So, getting ahead of ourselves. In the Garden of Eden, what did the tree represent? The tree of life in the Garden of Eden represented the very life force of God himself. If someone was to eat from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, they were to live forever and not die. That's what Genesis 3.22 tells us. The tree, what it represented, was in a very physical, tangible way in the Garden, it represented God's own life and rule over creation. That by, <clears throat> you had to live forever, you had to have the life of God in you. What is a tangible way of Representing that for God to actually create a tree that would ensure humans continue to live and show us what we need. We can't live forever apart from God and what He's given us. So the tree represented the way that God was to rule the world as king. He reigned through life. You had to stay connected to Him and obey Him to stay connected to life. Cut yourself off from him, like Adam and Eve did, and you would die and be driven from the tree of life. God controlled the world by giving the world life. And because Adam was created in the image of God and charged with the task of ruling creation on God's behalf, in God's way, for God's honor, like Adam <clears throat> was supposed to rule the world for God, in a way that would spread life and not death. If God reigns through life, by giving life, sustaining life, then Adam, God's image, entrusted with taking care of God's world, was to rule the same way. Being like a tree of life for all creation. So, just like God, was like a tree of life for creation, representing his own life force in the garden with a tree that you had to eat from and not die. So Adam, made in the image of God, was to be a tree of life and rule in a way that brought life to creation. How? One way was by being fruitful in the garden and multiplying and filling all creation with his seed, his offspring, just like a great tree spreads its seed and makes more trees grow up, Adam was to be like a tree. King Adam, God's first king, made in his image, was to be like a tree spreading his seed, his children. All over, God says, Lord, bless them, this one for me, and multiply, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule 
over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over everything that swims in the sea. So God is commanding Adam to be like a tree of life, filling creation. But instead, Adam was lifted up in pride in the garden. He tried to be like God in a way that he was not supposed to be. He wanted to call the shots, to define good and evil for himself, and he brought death. If you climb a tree, we'll stick with the tree, and I've used this illustration before, and you climb way out on a branch, that branch is your life. If you cut that branch, you will die if you're high enough up, right? If I climb in my tree stand while I sit in a saddle and I tether myself to a tree, and I that, that tether, 20 feet up, is my lifeline. If I am trying to get my bow in position and nick it with a broadhead and cut that lifeline, I cut myself off from life and I have a very good chance of falling and dying. I don't want to do that, so I'm very careful. But in the garden, Adam cuts himself off from the life of God by rebelling against God. That's what sin is. And so he dies. And the symbolism that the Bible gives is he's like a tree that gets chopped down because it tried to lift itself to heaven. He was cut off from the life of God. That's where this picture from from Daniel 4 is coming from. Coming from the Garden of Eden. So just think, Adam was supposed to be like a tree of life. Later kings, like the king of Assyria, Ezekiel 31, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, they are being described by the biblical authors as tree-like, Adam-like figures ruling the world. But they're bad Adams, just like the first one, and they too will get cut down and die. Why? Because they're lifted up in pride. A couple other quick connections to Genesis. Notice what he becomes because of his pride. Nebuchadnezzar becomes like a beast. He was ruling over the beasts, now he becomes like them. This imagery is from Genesis 3. There, in Genesis 3, the serpent, who Satan, a spiritual power, one of the spiritual beings in the heavenly realms comes down, rebels against God, the creator of all spiritual beings and all creatures of the dust. And Satan uses a beast of the field, the serpent, and he speaks through it to Adam and Eve and tempts them. And in Genesis 3 verse 1 we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field God had made. And so when Adam and Eve listen to the voice of the serpent, they are listening to the voice of a crafty. That word is a word for wise, actually. Like a wise but twisted wise man. A twisted beast. They listen to his voice and they obey him. So who is ruling who? If you listen to the voice of the beast that you're supposed to rule over, as king, you are now under the rulership of the beast. That's why the biblical authors call Satan the god of this world. The beast has become Adam's ruler. And sin 
beast-like. And we'll talk about this more in the application section. But sin and pride and rebellion against God quite simply make us behave like animals, as human beings. That's the point of the biblical authors. God wants us to see that connection. Finally, just one little brief thing before we move to the fulfillment of the dream. Another connection to Genesis. In Genesis, notice the tree reaches heaven, and judgment from heaven reaches down and judges it. Can you think of another place where something in Genesis reaches the heavens, and judgment comes down from God and humbles it? The Tower of Babylon. The Tower of Babylon. Babylonians have a track record of raising themselves up to the heavens. <laughs> they are a picture of humanity, a picture of Adam and of us all. We want him to define good and evil for ourselves. I'll, I'll do it my way, God. Right? I'll listen to my own counsel and my friends and not your way. And Babylon, the tower, was, was brought down in Genesis 11. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble from beginning to end of the Bible story. Now let's look at the dream fulfilled. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? This guy is thick. Right? I mean, does he learn? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what was decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the beasts. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Crazy stuff. Despite the warning he received, his heart's lifted up in pride. He boasts about his mighty power and his glory and his own majesty. And so a voice from heaven speaks, Your royal authority has been taken away from you. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes beast-like. And now let's look at point four, the last point this morning. The king humbled. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion, I mean, listen to these words. These words are awesome. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar really, I hope he truly learned his lesson. Maybe we'll meet him in the new creation. Listen to this. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sin, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor will return to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And here's the key phrase. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So, as we conclude, I want you to remember three things from this story. First, the heart of all human sin in you and in me is pride. And it all started with Adam. Pride attempts to lift ourselves up to be the little God of our own little world. And the less that you and I see it in our lives, the more likely that it's everywhere. Because the tragic thing about pride is it comes in, it comes in the package with built-in blinders so that you can't see it. I'm not being prideful, I'm just right. And pride comes with built-in blinders to its own existence. And it can be so subtle. And whenever we disobey God, I said it earlier, but in our lives, whenever there is disobedience against the Lord for any reason, it's because in that moment, we truly know, believe that we know what's best for us. It feels good, God. And so I'm going to do it. To hell with what you think. That's what we're saying. When we sin, how arrogant. And we've all done it, myself included. We need forgiveness probably need Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. Pride, whenever we put ourselves before someone else, is because we think we're better. And whenever we try to hurt someone with our own words, with our actions, it's because we think we're the judge of right and wrong and the jury and the executioner. I think it'll kill someone. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You texted a mean thing to me, I'll text a mean thing back. I'm the judge of right and wrong. My view is always right. Now the opposite of pride, humility, sacrifice, self-giving love, these are the things that are unique to us as humans, made in the image of God. They are the things that God intends to restore to us through Jesus. And the tragedy is that this story shows us what the ultimate outcome of sinful human pride is. So the core of sin is pride, according to the biblical story. And the second thing, I've already said it, sin makes us beast-like. It makes us like animals. Just study the way animals act in a lake, and you'll notice that, for the most part, selfishness and self-preservation is central to everything they do. Scientists would just call it evolution, survival of the fittest, right? Animals do have an innate desire, inbuilt instinct to protect their young and preserve their species. But this is not something that's a moral choice they make. It's just hardwired into them through instinct by God. Um, and usually it has a limit. A mom will abandon her young at some point. Um, 
But in general, we see animals who fight and then squabble over everything. I've always been fascinated by animals. I love to watch them, I love to hunt them, to learn as much as I can about them. And animals fight over everything. Humans do too. But that's not because we are just animals with brains. No, it's because sin has made us beast-like. We live to rule over the animals. We live to be different. But in Genesis 3, you see an overthrow. We become like the beasts, like the animals. And that's what Satan wants us to see humans throw the glory of representing God to the wind and behave like animals. Like monkeys fighting over a banana at the base of a banana tree filled with bananas. You know? There's plenty of bananas to go around, but this is my banana, and you're not going to touch it. You ever watch monkeys in a cage? It'll be good golly, right? And yet humans do the same thing. And they're sin, and they're selfishness. Because we have become beast like because of pride and sin. In the story of Nebuchadnezzar, we see the end to which all pride aims. The judgment of God upon pride as well. He makes us like selfish beasts. Creatures of mere instinct and not images of God made to reflect the God of love. Like beasts, sin and selfishness and pride make us hoard resources instead of giving sacrificially. It makes us gorge on more food than we need. It makes us fight to hold bigger and bigger homes and more and more stuff, never satisfied. Squabbling over little things like pigeons fighting over popcorn in an alley. Like seagulls battling over a french fry in a Walmart parking lot. Nations that go to war over land, over territory disputes. This is what humans are reduced to because of the sin of Adam. We're prone to blindly follow sexual impulses and every passionate desire of the flesh, like a young buck deer during his first rut, trying to chase everything in sight. Sin makes us animal-like, and while we may laugh at a deer or a teenager filled with hormones, it is not funny. It's tragic. Sin makes us animal-like. And because Adam gave into it, it plunged us into the fate of the beasts as well, which is death. The image of God was not created to die. He was created to live forever and rule creation. And yet, he, in obeying the beast, he joins the fate of the animals. But God did not give up on us. No, this is the third thing. I want to point out from our story today as we close, humanity desperately needed another Adam to come and do what every human king always fails to do in the Bible story. To be a perfect image of God, obedient in every way, totally humble and pure and loving. A last Adam figure who would become like a mighty tree of life from which the whole world could eat and live forever. 
a mighty tree who God himself would raise to the heavens and who would defeat death and reconnect us with our creator. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Daniel tells us about him in Daniel 7. I already alluded to this. There's a great and mighty son of Adam who ascends to the clouds, just like the tree in the heavens, and he doesn't get chopped down. Instead, God gives him glory and honor and authority, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, to rule. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will have no end. And in Daniel 7, he conquers the beasts. And their bodies are given to the fire. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. His book is amazing. And these beasts, he gives rule over once again. The kings have become beast-like, but not this king, Jesus. No. Jesus and his kingdom will have no end because he is a humble king who has lived and done all he's done for the glory of the Father. Listen to how Jesus himself talks about this. Mark 4, 30-32. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Hmm, maybe Daniel's parable. It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus says, God's kingdom is like a tree that starts really small and then gets into a really big tree and is like a tree of life for all creation. And who is the king of God's kingdom? Well, if you keep reading Mark, you know it's Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman who falls to earth and dies and then grows into a mighty tree, a tree of life. Jesus defeats Satan on the cross, which is in the Bible's vision to be understood as a tree. In the garden, so long ago. We're going to go right from the sermon, by the way, into the Lord's Supper. So if you're wondering, um, this will go just a little extra long. The communion reflection goes right into the Lord's Supper. In the garden, long ago, Adam the first brought death to humanity by choosing to eat from the wrong tree. And then he chose his will over God's will. In a garden. Millennia later, a son of Adam and a son of God comes. And as the last Adam, Jesus kneels in the garden. He's praying about a tree. Father, I don't want to go there in my flesh, but not your will, not my will, but your will be done. He makes the right choice. He chose to go and die in the tree to pay for Adam's choice and for all our choices. And by his death, he becomes a tree of life for humans who choose to receive his forgiveness and trust him. The cross of Jesus is our tree of life. 
And this is symbolized by the bread that we break and the cup that we drink every Sunday. And so I just want to spell out uh, what communion is for us. We usually try to, but last week I was passing out. <laughs> um, so. It's a joyful and a serious moment. With joy, we hold the bread and the cup and we remember Jesus, and we remember what he's done for us, and we rejoice in the eternal life and the promise of resurrection life that we have through him. And we also, with sadness, as we hold the cup, remember our own sin and pride and the reason he had to die. We remember the pain that he suffered, and we thank him, and we eat and drink and we remember. So, to be clear, you know this cup these are meaningless symbols. You drink, you drink bread, you drink juice all the time. Or you eat bread, right? Um, but when we eat it here, they're meaningless signals if they're not connected to Jesus and what he's done. And if you don't believe it, um, then it's not for you. So this bread and the cup is for everyone who said, Yes, the cross is my tree of life. And following Jesus in life, it means we obey him with our lives. So that's just important. Um, one thing that was happening in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians is that um, people were getting together to have communion, and the rich people were getting there first, because they didn't have jobs with long hours. And they were pigging out on the Lord's Supper. And they used wine. And they were getting drunk. And then the poor people were coming later. At the end, after their shifts got out. Joining for their meal. And there was nothing left. And Paul is like, you're, you're not living like Christians. You're, you're getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. And your, your brothers and sisters... You're treating them like they're not part of the family. And he says that's eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But there's many ways that we can eat and drink in an unworthy manner. If with one hand we are holding the bread and the cup that symbolizes Jesus' love and forgiveness for us and says, yes, Jesus, I'm part of him. And with the other hand, we're disobeying during the week we're not living for him, then Paul's words, Paul says you're eating and drinking judgment on your own head. I vote for Jesus with this hand, but not with this hand. I cannot do that. And so, use this moment too in your, in your time. If, it's, if, if you are for Jesus, you're following Jesus in your life, this is for you then. Um, if not, if you're not sure, that's okay. Just use this moment to consider, who, do I, who am I following? And Eat and drink with us and remember the Lord Jesus and what he's done and celebrate together his sacrifice for us. So I'm going to ask uh, for uh, Ben and Richard, would you guys come up and serve the Lord's Supper this week? And uh, I'm going to ask Johanna, would you play a something on the game? Spur of the moment, you pull something, you don't have a pocket. Oh, I guess you do have a pocket. Thank you.
Take the Lord's Supper together.